Welcome to Resilient Entrepreneurs, the podcast where we speak with business owners and entrepreneurs from around the world and from all walks of life in the hope that something new here will leave your business a little richer. We're your co-hosts, Vicky and Laura from Two for One Branding, and today's guest is Anise Haddad, a global nomad and executive coach who spent over 15 years coaching leaders of multinational companies. He's a certified transformational leadership facilitator. He's a professional certified coach, and he's passionate about mindful leadership, resilience leadership, culture change, personal transformation, self-improvement, team performance, all of those things. Anise wrote the book, The Eagle That Drank Hummingbird Nectar, and that has been compared to The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari by Robin Sharma. So we are really keen to get into finding out more about that novel. Welcome, 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 Anise. Thank you. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Wonderful meeting you both. Yeah, same. Thank you for joining us. So tell us, Anise, I'd love to just go back a little bit of time and um, learn a little bit about who you are from where you came from. And so can you tell us a little bit about your backstory, your childhood, where, where you came, where you grew up? Wow, a long story. So I'm what they call a third culture kid, if you've heard that term. Uh, it's not a term we had when I was growing up. It means that you grew up in a different world from your parents and you kind of create your own culture. So uh, my father's from Iraq, my mother's American, uh, Scottish origin a couple hundred years ago. I was born in Texas where my mother's family is from. And then, uh, but by the time I was 21, I'd lived half my life overseas. I already spoke French fluently. Um, so I've lived all my life in a, in a very kind of moving environment with uh, different cultures. Originally, I was a programmer. So that, that's kind of my personal side. The professional side, I was a programmer originally and became a tech entrepreneur, built a payment software company in France, uh, in the south of France, Aix-en-Provence. Grew it to 30 countries, sold it in 2007, and I thought that I was going to be a serial entrepreneur because that was the only thing that you would do after doing that. And then I discovered what I was most proud of was my people. So I, I, I was quite surprised at that. I had people that worked for me that went off and became CEOs, CTOs, CFOs of other companies, and I found that I was a lot more um, passionate about that and proud of that than the technology we've created, the patents and all that. So that quickly sent me into mentoring, uh, mentoring startup founders at the time. And then that quickly became coaching, leadership facilitation. So it was a, a major transformation that uh, at 47, 48, 49, 50 um, in a completely new and different career than what I was doing the first half of my life it sounds uh, very meaningful that. yeah very fulfilling and, and and my the novel is actually a fictionalized version of that transition capturing the difficulty that we go through um, especially later in life with the 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 identities that we've created for ourselves and then letting go of that and shifting into a new phase resisting that shift until you kind of don't have any other option all of that messiness involved in transformation so that so the novel was a fictionalized i i, I wanted to write it uh, i'd written two 
payment software books, payment systems books 25 something years ago when I was running my company. And I didn't want to write kind of a how-to book on that. That felt boring. So I, I made a, a novel and then that allowed me to play with it in a much, um, much deeper way than just say, here's my story. Um, so it, it was very difficult. It was a very, very difficult process, but rewarding. How, how long did it take from, from when you first started writing the book to getting it published? Oh, oh three, four years. I, I rewrote it a, two, three times. I had like three or four different writing coaches, and I still remember one of them. Her voice is still in my head, and it's in the book, but through other people. And she'd be saying, uh, you're teaching again. This section, you're teaching. And I tell her, no, it's a story. You're teaching. Reread it. And I reread it. I go, yeah, okay, I'm teaching. And then, <laughs> and then I'd have to pull back and, and really dig deep as what was the experience of that moment. So it was a challenging process to get that teaching voice out of my head um, and recognize it faster. Uh, but that served me in my coaching because now I'm a lot more comfortable the, with coaching without telling people what to do, and all, which was already part a huge part of coaching. But there are always little things that stick in there, the little, uh, little bugs that are still going. <laughs> I do find that um, the more curious we are in life and about other people, the less we come across as teaching. And I've only become aware of that recently because I have exactly that issue when I'm talking to people and I think I know the answer or I know how I can help them or I know someone I can put them in touch with and it all feels so helpful, but actually it's not helpful. It's much better yeah. just to sit back and be curious and ask them what their experience is. And it's a very different way of communicating. Absolutely. Uh, all of my work with very senior executives, uh, the vast majority of the work is in that space. And it's because we build our careers. Our value comes from the answers that we can provide. Our sense of worth is having answers, being able to fix problems. So that's the first thing that comes in. And then at some point, something shifts at very senior levels where you start going, okay, maybe my worth is somewhere else. Um, so I, I encapsulate that into the idea of your value and your worth is now in the questions that you ask as opposed to the answers that you have. But it's it's that sense of deep worth, the worthiness that's so linked to pro solving problems and having answers. And it's what got us to where we get to at a certain point and letting go of that is very difficult. What do you find is the main issue that a lot of your clients deal with? I think that's a huge one linked to that. And, and it's, in, it's in the novel, but it's kind of, it, 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 it's not presented as a, here's a big problem. You need to solve this. It's woven through the novel as the protagonist and other characters discover this. Another element that I find is, this is also in the novel. It's a, it was a personal discovery. Empowerment um, is such a buzzword and leaders feel like they're empowering their people. And I have a story in there that near the end of running my company, I had, I was doing a leadership retreat. We're doing a ropes course, you know, where you're walking through the trees and you've got your harness and all that. And I was paired up with a young lady. We're supposed to go up to the top of a platform. And then the facilitator tells one of you to put on a blindfold. 
And so the facilitator pointed at me, so I have to wear a blindfold. And um, you're supposed to let your partner guide you across this rickety bridge that has holes in it and, and all that. And she was paralyzed. She she didn't want to move. She was scared. Um, and I'm telling her, come on, you can do it. Just pull me across. And then my type A personality kicks in when, when I see that we're not moving. And so I, I squeeze in front of her while with the blindfold on. I have her hold my harness in the back. And I managed to get us both across by feeling for the <laughs> for the empty planks and all that. I get to their side. I'm proud. I got the job done. I look down and people are clapping. And the, the facilitator, I still remember her face. She was furious. And, and when I came down, she said, what the hell was that? I said, well, I got the job done. Got us both across. And she said, um, you deprived your partner of the opportunity to find her own courage. And you deprived yourself of the opportunity to learn what it means to truly trust someone else. And that settled on me for the next day or so. And I came up with the term courage vampire. And, and we all do it in, in business and in, in leading companies. We do it. We don't realize it, but we, we step in. Even if we don't know how to do the thing, we step in and get it done because that's what we've always done. But then it deprives others of their own opportunity to tap into courage. Ooh. I think that happens so much more often than any of us are conscious of. Because I'm even thinking as a parent, that's yeah. probably something I do a lot and just don't even think about. Just get it done. Just needs to get done. Get the thing done. Right? Yep. 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 How old are your kids? I have a 10-year-old and a 15-year-old. The age of stepping out into the world and the unknown. Exactly. Right? Exactly. There's a lot in my book on uh, comparison with parenthood. And I've I found uh, through comments from senior executives, I found that we have a subconscious way or an unconscious way of bringing our parenting energy into work. So as your kids grow, your parenting energy shifts. Um, you, you don't parent the same way. Some of us do, and we really mess up with our adult children who don't want to talk to us anymore because we keep telling them what to do. <laughs> but yep. it, it, it's a fascinating thing to see senior executives who have teenage kids and they're bringing KPI type things into their work because that's what works at home. And then you see board members that have adult children. They don't do that anymore because they know that you have to, you have to inspire. It, it, it's a very different kind of leadership. Is that leadership taught? Is that something that you can teach or does it have to be found by the leader through coaching? I don't like, I don't like teaching anything. So I, I tell people, you already know this. You, you're struggling with it as a parent. You've gone through transitions already as a parent. You're not parenting your teenagers the way you parented them when they were three or four years old. So your capacity to lead to parent has changed. And in the same way, you changed it. So you did, you dig up. It's exactly that same analogy as on the ropes course. You find that. You find that courage, that wisdom from within. Uh, and, and my work now, after going through all that process, it really is uh, constantly checking myself when I'm working with a group. Do I truly believe that they can get through whatever it is they're getting through? And as long as I have that, 
it works. As soon as that starts to drift away a bit, I need to pull myself back on track and remind myself these are powerful people. They can get it through. And then it does. They take off. It's that trust. I think the trust is what is is so key. And, you know, entrepreneurship is such an interesting thing because often entrepreneurs start off as solo entrepreneurs and then maybe they build a, start building a team and they, you know, suddenly have people working for them and then they start scaling and it starts to take off and the years go on and they find themselves in a leadership position, but they didn't set out to be in a leadership position. Yeah. And often um, they have to find their way as a leader and it can be really, really challenging when you're just kind of bumbling along <laughs> and you've yeah. got some other people like bumbling along with you and trying to figure it all out. What advice would you give to someone right there before they're heading into having a big team? So when they're just starting out, maybe they've got their first few employees and they're trying to figure out how to be a leader. How do you lead a team? What advice would you give somebody in the startup phase? Oh, my I don't like giving advice. <laughs> what insights maybe? So my insight was uh, my co- everything changed when we just got over 30 people. We became a big company, um, big company in people's minds. So we all of a sudden had silos. We had, uh, I couldn't understand it because I thought we were still a startup until we were 70, 80, 100 people. But there's something, and when I talk to other founders, uh, I've, I've encountered that. You all have probably, I'm sure you've uh, encountered that. There's some shift that happens after a certain number of people. It's not a very big number. And and all of a sudden, the leadership comes in because you're not, it's, it's not just a band of friends that are getting stuff fun done. Um, you're, you're now running a company, and it's a very, very different I guess the only, if I were to give advice on that, it would be to really know your strengths and your weaknesses and find other people around you that fit in. For me, it was finding a, a, a fantastic CFO who eventually became COO. And then when, I, when we separated the chairman and CEO positions, he became CEO and I was executive chairman. It was having that kind of financial and operations uh, capability, which I, I've never liked. I've never been, never been something I'm interested in. I think the biggest thing would be to be aware of that and find those. Um, but that's simple to say. Everybody kind of knows that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's simple to say, not always easy to do. That's the yeah. thing. It's not always yeah. easy to do. Because often we want to hire people that are like us, that are like-minded and want to yeah. you know, enjoy the ride with us. But it really is better maybe to find the people that are think a little bit different, that have expertise in the areas you don't. And then it might be a little bit easier working together like that. I think it's Daniel Priestley that says uh, a small company from one to 12 is quite easy. And everyone yeah. is kind of one big team working together. As soon as you hit number 13, that it starts to really change. And then like from 13 to 40, it's like everyone's out in the wild trying to figure things out. And it's a little wild. And then it's sort of something changes after 40 and you start to then you do yeah. you become teams and you have an executive board and then there's a whole uh, much more organized organization but yeah. yeah that in between part is is the part where it's a little little crazy and some people never want to get to that and that's fine and happy with the small lifestyle yeah. business with a small team and that's amazing um and others want to go for go big right yeah 
I think that's a wonderful way of, of putting it. And I, I realize now that it probably had changed at 12 or 13. I only realized it at 30. I would buy my, my nose was to the grindstone and I was just running around getting things done. So when I say 30, that was when I was aware of it. And it probably did occur at 13, 14 people. <laughs> Hopefully all those employees weren't knocking on your door saying, something's got to change. Come on, why aren't we doing it this way? And I think you see a lot of leaders just almost ruining their own creation, their own business, because they're not tuned into those things that you're talking about. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 If there was something that some advice that someone had given to you or steered you in a certain direction early on, would there be anything or are you happy? Yeah. With uh, one big advice is to realize that the runway ahead, I don't mean the runway in terms of finances and all that, but there's still potential for a lot in the future. I think when I was running my company, I was under a sense of uh, this is my only really big shot in life. This is it. I, it has got to work. It's do or die. If it fails, I failed my life. There's nothing else. I'm not going to have another chance. And that's a weird thing to get stuck into in your 30s and, and early 40s. And then it was subsequent to that that I started to realize, actually, there's a lot more and it can go in many different directions. One exercise that I do now with people is, who will I be at 100? And at an elementary school in Singapore, when my stepson was uh, in elementary school, we were there for a parent-teachers meeting of some, I think, eight, seven, eight years ago. And there was a, this bulletin board in front of one of the classrooms is, who will I be at 100? And it was amazing because it was something that I had been asking myself and asking coaches. And it just hit me that we grow up in an environment where you, you work until 65, you retire, and then you die. It's kind of unspoken, but it's kind of that. And they're growing up in an environment where they expect to live to 100. They're going to have lots of different careers and stuff. Their, their answers were funny. Some of them was, would say, I'm, when I'm 100, I'll be dead. Someone else says, I'm going to be a rock star. So they're kids putting that. But it seeps in. And it, I think it just kind of relaxes the brain. So you're not really like, I got to make this work by the time I'm 30. Otherwise, it's too late. And, <laughs> and what I really love about that is the question is, who will I be? Not what will I do? Exactly. That's a Big huge shift. Big shift. So I can, it, it opens up the possibility I could have multiple identities. I could play with different things. I could be multiple different things over, over a lifespan. It's not fixed. It's not static. Do you think this ties into the purpose conversation? Because I find that people at 40 and 50, and uh, that was myself until recently, felt a little stuck on my purpose. It's like I've already had that purpose, but now I feel like there must be something more. I want to contribute more now that I'm at this stage of my life. And then this whole purpose question comes up, and then it feels quite helpless if you can't answer that for yourself. Um, yeah. And I wonder if there's, because there's this image of it being a fixed Thing, that if you don't yep. find it, you've missed it. Yep. So I like to I like to have the brain relax as well through questions like, "What's your purpose going to be the next five years?" Yeah. And then, uh, ironically, when you it feels like when you relax the brain, it gets easier to see kind of a deeper purpose that could last much longer. But you're not coming at it like, like, like with with um, tenseness. You're coming at it with a more relaxed brain. 
Is that where your mindfulness leadership comes in? This is all mindfulness. It's just not called, I don't usually call it mindfulness. It's being aware of where your thoughts are, relaxing your brain so that you can see. It also fits into the the changes we have in our in our neurocircuitry in our late 40s, early 50s, where we have much more. We forget things. We forget where we put our car keys and stuff like that. But we have more connections between the two hemispheres. So we start to connect the dots easier. Um, so there's a lot going on in the brain at that time. And, and all of this fits into that, because if you can relax your, your mind, you can see those things, your, your intuition goes up, holistic thinking expands. If we stay focused the same way, and we feel like the things that got us here, we got to continue doing, it, it starts to feel like it's crashing. People feel people hit burnout easier. So I think that purpose thing is we're coming at purpose with a type A personality of getting over that rickety bridge with a blindfold on, or we come at purpose of, um, let me just see what what comes up for me for the next few years. Do you buy into like the midlife crisis sort of thing? I think it's that same energy. It's exactly that same energy refocused, channeled in a different way. It's an energy that's coming from oh my, I've reached the point in my life where I thought I would be in a completely different place. I didn't achieve what I wanted. My relationship isn't exactly what I'd wanted. I have friends that have gone much further. Woe is me. What's my purpose going to be? How in the world am I going to be useful? My value is going down. All of that stuff comes together. But rather than going out and buying a sports car, maybe I can channel it in a different way and and see, all the sports cars are great too, but in Singapore, they're so expensive. So I wouldn't do that, but it's that channeling of that energy that happens at that time in life. Yeah, it's interesting. And in another podcast, they were talking about the happiness is like a you. So in your youngest, you're the most happy. And then you kind of hit midlife where it's like your thirties and forties and early fifties and you're, you're most miserable. And then as you get older, you get happier again. And I think a lot of people were down here, right? In that midlife, like, because it's also the time when you have the most pressure on you financially, uh, responsibility wise, you got aging parents and young kids to look after the exact same time. There's all these factors that make this time of life some the most difficult, probably the most unhappy. So yeah, yeah, it's it's a tough time. And that's why I think the crisis kind of comes in us too. It's like, oh, I'm dealing with all of this and- I'm not living any purpose or I hate my job on top of it or I hate what I'm yeah. doing. This is not what I want to be doing. Yeah, yeah. Getting through that is, is the challenge. It's a perfect storm that's happening right at that time of life. Yeah. Mm. And that just brings me back to your book, which you described as a bit of a autobiographical novel potentially. Yeah. And so yeah. it also sounds like a bit of a hero's journey. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So what's, what would definitely... you say is the essence there? Share with us more about the book. The The subtitle is a novel about personal transformation and business leaders. So the whole story is on transformation. It comes from the angle that we don't go out and seek transformation for the sake of transformation because it's fun. We do it when we're really pushed into a corner and uh, nothing else is working. And then bang, something clicks and then it opens up. One of the stories, so there is the protagonist, which is kind of me at 50, around 20% of the, the anecdotes in the book are real. 
but most of it is 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 fictional. And there's a story in the book about an Indian man. It's in Singapore, so there are mix of cultures and all that. And 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 one of the people in the book is is the managing director of a textile factory in India. Somebody I'd coached around 10, 12 years ago. He was so he's in the book as well, but fictionalized, and he's facing uh, fatalities in the factory, and he is struggling to figure out how do I, how do I deal with this? And he's 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 brought in management consultants and all that. They've spent millions of dollars having all the safety stuff put in place. The regulations are all met, and yet people were still dying. And so in a conversation, I asked him, how would you rate your commitment to safety from one to 10? And he said, very, very high. And I said, can you give me a number? He said, probably nine. So the conversation turned around, maybe that's why people are dying. What's missing? If your gut feel is saying nine and you're not saying 10, what's missing? And then he blew up and he got angry. He said, uh, you don't understand. Uh, Many of my people are uneducated. I can't be on, I've got thousands of people. I can't be on everyone's back. That was his definition of a 10. I have to be on everyone's back and do it for them and make sure. He said, when someone wants to get from one side, one end of the shop floor to the other, it's very long. And if a forklift is jump, is going by, he'll jump on the front of the forklift. They know they're not supposed to do that, but I can't be on their backs. And then on our next session, he said, um, he was excited. He said he told me the story of an elderly janitor who had tripped and fallen. And he stopped and took care of him, called the safety people to come check the man out. And he took his jacket off, put it under his head. He told me all of that is nine out of 10. That's what I would normally do. And he said, but then I went further. When the safety people said the man was fine, he just needed to go home and rest and stay off the leg for a few days. He said, I got him in my car which in India is not expected that the managing director would take the janitor in his car. He, I said, I drove him home to, to his place. I helped him into his house. I made sure that his wife would make sure he doesn't get out of bed for a while. I had tea with both of them. And it was that, that he wasn't seeking transformation, but this question of what is 10 out of 10 commitment to safety something that he couldn't answer. There's no book that tells you what it is. He had to find for himself what that was. Then things shifted because he 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 showed, he modeled a behavior of trying to find his own full commitment and and, and connect with people as human beings. He never would have come at it through trans I want to transform and become a better leader. It came because he, he had to. So the book has a lot of that in it. Is, is we go through that when we really have to. I love that story so much because I think as leaders get to really big organizations too, it's easy to sort of step back and you step away and lose touch of just the the people that work with you. And I think, you know, it's all about relationships. Life is all about relationships. And how do you build good, strong, trustworthy relationships with people. That's what gets people behind your mission in your company. It's what gets people to, and probably the workers just seeing him care that much would yeah. want to take better care of themselves even within the factory and look after each other 
and make yep. sure somebody isn't jumping on the forklift because it was a risk, you know? Yeah. Oh, yep. Wow. That's a mantra that I, I use a lot is that an organization at the end of the day is just a bunch of human beings creating value for other human beings. That's all it is. We get lost in the details of how we're creating value and we think that's the important, but really it's human beings creating value for other human beings. So, Yeah. And I like, it was Richard Branson that said, if you take care of your staff, they take care of the customers. So yeah. it's that mentality, like the importance of the leader looking after yep. their own, yeah, first. Yep. It's all mm. about caring and sharing. Beautiful. Um, Anise, do you have a particular author or a podcast that you follow? Um, any favorites that you care to share or recommend to our audience? Oh, I read, uh, it's quite an eclectic uh Right now, right now, I've been reading things on um, neuroscience and the aging brain. Um, these aspects of the, the the prefrontal cortex is getting slower, so we're not processing information as fast as when we were young. But we have all of these holistic connections, so it compensates. I love that stuff. Another book I can't even remember the name of it is the is on. Um, free will being an illusion. There's a whole area related to neuroscience and, and well, much more than neuroscience because it, 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 there's a lot of things that impact what we feel is our, is our free will. But there's a in, very intriguing um, angle developing that free will is just kind of an illusion that we make up. But I, I don't know what to make of that yet. I can kind of understand it from a biological and neurological standpoint. But at the same time, I see so much. It's like if you live as if the illusion is real, there's something much more effective in that lifestyle than, <laughs> than yeah. just saying, okay, I don't have any free will. Yeah, this is but, not uh, a pen. Yeah, I do not choose to go and make a cup of tea. Yeah, I have no control over me. It's what, all biologically driven or psychologically driven? Yeah, wow. but yeah, the biology is deeply uh, so. It's a, it's an interesting area that 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 seems quite solid. I think what I'm noticing is this um, um, appreciation for paradox a lot more than I did younger. So I'm kind of reading things in those directions, or I find those interesting. I need I need to be careful not to be drawn, and it feels like it could be a rabbit hole. Yes. Um, <laughs> Very much, and they're they're so deep. Those rabbit holes, so deep. Yeah. Yeah. And just that the self inquiry then leads to kind of universal inquiries like, is this real? How, you know, are all the paradigms that I've been working, living my life on, is that real? Yeah. Is that true? I, and yeah. I, and I, I think it's actually, that's a wonderful place to be as a senior leader the, 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 the ambiguity, the lack of answers, things that can't be easily answered. Uh, there's a quote by the Brazilian Julio Olala, the founder of ontological coaching, um, which I love. It's uh, um, knowledge is a love affair with answers. Wisdom is a love affair with questions. And it's that, that Latin element of a love affair with questions. It, it's just so, there's something really juicy about that. So the, the loving the paradox and the whoa, isn't this cool? And uh, and I think that's really the space today in this massive 
era of change where senior leaders, they, they will increasingly be living in that space. That's kind of their role, asking the really hard paradoxical questions and that don't have answers, but that help the company, help the organization kind of adapt and move and change and be more resilient through those uh, difficult questions. Isn't that the fun though? Like, I think that is the most fun part of being in business is trying to go figure out something new that doesn't have an answer yet. It's being curious, right? And going and finding it. Yep, I love that. I love that. Yeah, and you mentioned resilience. So of course we have to ask you, what is your definition of resilience? I actually don't much... um, like the word resilience anymore. I use it because I don't know what else to use there, but resilience has an element of I bounce back from adversity. Something bad happened to me and I bounced back. And and what we're facing today is like this constant onslaught of, 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 of uh, change where it's no longer resilience of, okay, here comes the big wave. Let me steal myself and get through it. Ah, okay, I'm through the wave because there's another wave. So it's more a sense of surfing the waves rather than constantly (laughs) being battered by them. So resilience for me has, it feels like, I know it has that sense as well, both senses that I just described, but I think most people use resilience in that first manner is I I need to bounce back from something bad that's happening. Um, and, And my angle is maybe it's not bad. Maybe it's just the way we're living. Maybe it's just life and we've, just going through that and uh i don't know what word to use on that um resilience is kind of the <laughs> it's the word that's there denise maybe we don't need a new word maybe we just need a redefinition of the word let's start yeah. the movement the new resilience yeah. movement yeah. yeah riding the wave yeah i have friends that work at the resilience company uh i can't remember the the, the, the anyway it's called the resilience company um it's it's a coaching and facilitation organization uh um on resilience and and that's how they look at it it's more that second version that they that they look at it yeah it's it's good advice for all of us to just surf the waves don't stand there and be battered by it because you're right more waves are coming it's just life life comes at you at waves sometimes you're on top sailing having a great time and sometimes you know it sinks and you've got to ride with it it's just life and businesses like that as well as personal life so hello as strong leaders we just got to keep riding the waves anise thank you so much this has been an awesome conversation i love talking to coaches like you because you always come so full of i know you don't like the word advice but there's advice (laughs) in there there's lessons there's stories (laughs) There's great ones to go back and listen to again and lots to learn um, from experience like yours. So thank you very much. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. I love the conversation. Thank you very much. Save you. Take care.